This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, you're about to hear from Dr. J. Juan Rue, President and CEO for Geisinger, an integrated healthcare system headquartered in Danville, Pennsylvania, that comprises hospitals, employed providers, a health plan, a medical school, and research and innovation centers. It's just such a great honor to speak to Dr. Rue and the work that he's done at Geisinger to cultivate a spirit of innovation and transformation across the organization, driving new approaches to healthcare's most complex problems. Dan, I don't even know where to begin. We covered so much ground today, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear this amazing conversation. Yeah, Eric, what I love from this conversation with Dr. Rue is he very clearly states that they've been doing value since 1985. It's in their blood. It's part of their culture. They're on a value journey. They're revitalizing primary care. We talk about their COVID response and how value is a part of that. We, we talk about being asset light, how they're addressing SDOH, they're leading in precision health. Such amazing conversation with Dr. Rue today. I'm really excited for our listeners to be able to enjoy it. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and hear from Dr. J. Juan Rue as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. J. Juan Rue, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so exciting to have you this week to discuss all the great things that Geisinger is doing in value-based care. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to join you guys. Well, Dr. Rue, I thought a great place to start today would be to discuss Geisinger's value journey. Geisinger is one of the leading integrated health systems in the country, serving more than 3 million residents through 45 counties in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, has 30,000 employees, nine hospitals, 1,600 physicians, 13 hospital campuses, 70 primary care sites, two research centers, and a 550,000 member health plan. It's a big system. But most remarkably, and our listeners are obviously in tune with the value-based care movement, and Geisinger is an exemplar for value-based payment innovation and care delivery transformation. I mean, you had a sophisticated EHR in place since the mid-90s. 
Geisinger was also an early adopter of value-based payment as a member of the Keystone Accountable Care Organization, which is an ACO that has 5,000 physicians, nine hospitals, you know, $800 million in spend managed annually through that ACO. And, um, and additionally, Geisinger has been engaged in Medicare's bundled payment for care improvement program since 2014 and currently has more than $140 million in healthcare services delivered as part of that Medicare BPCIA program. So, Dr. Rue, I wanted to see if you could describe Geisinger's value journey to our listeners in a moment in time right now where everyone's trying to make sense of value-based payment and you actually have health systems that are doubling down on fee-for-service and even going as far as to jettison their risk contracts for the more readily understood pathway to revenue sustainability in the fee-for-service world. Geisinger seems to have a different take on this. And I wanted to ask you, what would you tell our listeners out there who are hesitant to take on the extremely difficult undertaking of, of investment in population health infrastructure that really allows for that deeper understanding of the patient population. As a leader in value-based care, can you provide some, some introductory comments about Geisinger, the value journey, and then maybe some inspiration for those groups that are out there trying to figure this out? No, I think that's a great question, Eric. If you go back to the beginning of our journey, I'd say it started back in 1985 when we got into the game of uh, being our own health plan. And as a result, you know, we've been in this value-based world, gosh, for three and a half decades. And so I think it's given us a head start in many ways to rethink how we uh, deliver care, what kinds of care models uh, we find effective, and being able to also innovate around different care models that aren't wedded to just fee-for-service reimbursement. Now, all of that being said, I think it's important to acknowledge and recognize that we actually have a foot in both worlds. We have a good part of what we do where we're in that value-based side, either because we're taking care of folks who are insured on our health plan, or we're uh, taking care of people that are in our ACO and so forth. But we also have the other side of the world that we continue to operate in a fee-for-service world as well, where we have the privilege and honor of taking care of patients who are members of other health plans. And so we do very much work in that hybrid world. But I think by and large, what the value-based side of things does for us is it allows us to innovate around care models, whether it's taking care into the home, looking at ways to avoid and prevent hospitalization or ER visits or so forth, by making other paths easier for patients and members. I think all of those things become possible and they become powered by the fact that we've been able to marry, at least in part of our world, the payment with the delivery. And so that's very important for what we do. And that framework that started back in 1985 with our own health plan, I think that's followed through more recently to allow us to participate in some of the programs you're talking about, whether it's our ACO or the bundled payments program with uh, CMS or our direct to employer programs. I think all of these are, are things that are predicated on bringing payment a lot closer to care delivery. And when that happens, we've seen great things tend to result from that because your incentives are lined up to try to keep people well. You know, And I know I'm preaching to the choir between the two of you and your listeners, but when you have the right incentives to prevent and keep people healthy, then you could actually invest in those programs, whether it's the fresh food pharmacy or the senior-focused primary care or moving care into the home for the sickest 3% of our patient population, 
all of those things become very doable and not just doable, but uh, valuable in a world where you, you marry that payment and delivery together. As far as the last point of your question around, you know, what would I say to other systems and how could they get involved in this? I think it's sometimes there's a little bit of irony. I actually think there are so many areas of healthcare where dipping your toe in the water and then getting momentum is often the right way to go. This is one where, yes, that does still make sense, but the more upside value you can claim, I think that really supports the in investments that need to happen further upstream. So whether it's care managers, care coordinators, or reinventing your delivery system, I think those are things that there are some simple things that can be done, but they do require a little bit of investment, whether it's making sure people have easy, timely access to services so they don't land in places like the ER. I think all of those things are, are things that only really become doable when you have the upside that gets created from that as well. In other words, if you're only getting a 5% gain share on the upside creation, I don't know that that justifies some of the investment that needs to be made. But if you're sharing the gain share, you know, 50-50, now there's enough upside potential to justify some of the upfront investment. And so I think that's in many ways how we think about entering into some of these programs and how I think it would hopefully make sense for some others out there as well. I want to move into a topic that I know is very important to you, and it's the work that Geisinger is doing to revitalize primary care as a cornerstone of its value strategy. Primary care is certainly foundational to value in our nation's healthcare system, but the reality is primary care physicians are relegated to a lower tier status in the current business of fee-for-service medicine. Primary care physicians, as you know, earn far less than their specialist peers in the fee-for-service business model, and consequently, We've got medical students coming out of college that are saddled with an average tuition debt of 200000 and they're choosing not to go into primary care because of that. So several years ago, the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine decided to create a program that would help increase the supply of primary care physicians. And the Abigail Geisinger Scholars Program offers students entering the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine free tuition, which is incredible for all four years of medical school in exchange for a commitment to work at Geisinger for four years after completing residency. And the cost of the program is supported by the clinical enterprise and the health plan, which already are providing fundamental support to the medical school and, and which benefit from the program. I mean, it's clear to me that the power to win in value-based care really increases with a revitalized primary care community. And it's impressive to see how committed Geisinger is to reinventing that future of primary care. So my question, is can you speak to the outcomes of that employment-based tuition waiver program for primary care and discuss a little bit more about how Geisinger's reinventing primary care for the future of value-based payment? And for all those leaders out there listening to the podcast, what can we do collectively to give primary care the prominent position it deserves so that American healthcare has a fighting chance to be fully transformed? Maybe I'll start with a couple words about primary care. Primary care, we view as uh, it, it's the backbone of the delivery system. And I think, especially when you're talking about certain demographics of patients, namely those who tend to be a little older, elderly patients with multiple chronic comorbidities, you know, primary care becomes so important to help them navigate and quarterback many, many different 
clinical issues. And so it serves a critical need. And what we've also seen is, you know, when we have the path of least resistance, so to speak, be primary care, then I think that drives a lot of care needs into that setting versus when it's difficult to access primary care, then the path of least resistance oftentimes becomes places like the emergency room. And, you know, that's my specialty. I'm an ER physician by training, but oftentimes for those chronic comorbidities or chronic diseases or managing things in a longitudinal way with continuity, those are not things that the ER is good at doing. Uh, it's very good at acute issues or or emergent issues, um, but that longitudinal care, the continuity that older folks might need or that folks with multiple comorbidities might need, the ER is not the right place for that. And so our philosophy has been that we wanna make the path of least resistance be primary care. And in order to do that, we know that we need an abundance of a workforce that's trained and thinking of the care model that way. And that's where the program that you referenced, the Abigail Geisinger Scholars Program through our medical school, has really been a tremendous addition to what we're doing on the primary care side. As you referenced, it was probably two or three years ago now that we launched the program and up to 40, 45% of every medical school class at our medical school will go to medical school completely tuition-free. And the idea is exactly as you alluded to, to remove any hint of financial burden that may be keeping people from entering into primary care. And if we can guarantee that they'll come out debt-free and have a job with us to boot, and uh, you know, for every year of support we give them, there's an expectation of a year of service back to Geisinger, then we know that we'll be replenishing the ranks of what our community needs as far as primary care resources for years and decades to come. That's what we're most excited by. The other, though, is not just having bodies come through the door. You know, we want to be a talent factory, but it's actually more than just getting bodies. It's making sure those bodies understand different models of care and, and to make sure they understand that there are different options around how to take care of folks, whether it's our senior-focused primary care model, which is called 65 Forward, or our care model that moves care into the home for the sickest of the sick, that's our Geisinger at Home model, or our PACE program, our you know Geisinger Life program, which is for the frail and elderly, and it's sort of a day program combined with the care. You know, these are all different models and flavors of primary care that we want to expose learners to from early on so that they don't come out thinking that primary care is the traditional plain vanilla that you would see in most places across the land. We, we think there's a lot more to it and incorporating other concepts and other models of care. Uh, social determinants is another good one. We want to make sure they have that comprehensive and, and fully rounded out learning experience. And we think we're the right place to offer that because we have so many of these programs already launched. And, and so it's on the one hand, providing tuition-free education and shoring up the resources for our communities in terms of primary care. But it's also making sure that those resources are coming in with the right kind of training and awareness and passion because we think you know, this is something that deserves a lot of passion because it doesn't get much better than enhancing the wellness of your communities. And we think that's a big part of what this program entails.
Well, it definitely deserves a lot of passion, Dr. Rue, and I commend you and your health system for really looking to revitalize the primary care community. And I, I, just, I just can't help but think about how downtrodden primary care is nationally. I mean, we have seen, you know, over the course of time that PCPs have become devalued and marginalized. And, and as we speak right now, you know, we're going through a pandemic. There's a surge in cases right now because of the Delta variant. And primary care is really that first line of defense during the pandemic. I mean, they've been reinforcing public health messages, offering vaccinations, helping patients manage at home, identifying those most in need of hospital care. And while being on the front line, and I saw a stat recently that said about 27% of physician deaths have been in the primary care community because they lacked PPE early on when they were first uh, at the point of care during the pandemic. So I wanted to ask you a little bit just about, as we kind of talk about primary care, there's obviously this sense of moral injury that's happening. There's burnout. I mean, it's been, I guess, exacerbated by the pandemic. And I wanted, I wanted to ask you if at a health system level, if you can speak to Geisinger's experience with COVID-19 and how is it taking care of its providers so that they can better care for patients? And on the primary care front specifically, how has the pandemic really created the opportunity to further redesign the care delivery model with virtual on-demand visits and enhanced telehealth capabilities? Yeah, and, and I think a lot of your comments, the COVID impact has not just been in primary care. I mean, there's frontline folks throughout our organization, and uh, many of them aren't even in the clinical side of the world. I mean, whether it's folks on our health plan helping members navigate the COVID dynamic, our specialists, our surgeons, and the elective procedures, and, and things that they did to work through the backlog. Obviously, our nursing staff, our environmental staff, food services, I mean, I could just go down the line. Even our finance staff, who are totally back office, and yet we're having to pivot quite a bit in terms of how they did their jobs. I would say, and I know we're not alone, but the, the pandemic really had a tremendous impact on all of these facets of what goes into operating your typical health system. And so I pinch myself every day because I feel tremendously lucky and blessed that our workforce has been just tremendous throughout this whole thing in terms of the adapting you know, through many, many curves in the road, twists and turns in the journey. And I think they've really risen to the occasion and continue to do so. Although your points are absolutely well taken, everybody's tired. And I think you're seeing that across the country. But as far as some of the things that we did, I think in many ways, we had the typical kind of experience as many other places, whether it's shifting very quickly to virtual care and all of those things. But I think some of the things that I would call out that may have been a little different, I think a lot of that value-based orientation that I referenced earlier and uh, the fact that we're an organization that has long thought about how do you get further upstream and prevent, you know, so that people don't land in the ER, don't land in the hospital. I think those same capabilities and that same mindset really helped us during COVID. The fact that we had our own Geisinger at Home program that was already delivering care into the homes we were able to actually take care of a lot of folks with and without COVID by going into their homes. And uh, this was at a time when obviously people didn't want to be in the hospitals appropriately, and were still able to meet their care needs into the home environment. That's one example of, you know, a muscle that we had already built even from prior to the pandemic 
that now we were able to exercise in a more targeted way during the pandemic. Same thing in terms of working with employers, working with local school districts, working with the nursing homes in the community. You know, these are all things that we don't own and operate, obviously, but we were accustomed to partnering with each of those entities even from before the pandemic because they were our partners for our health plan members. And so being able to build upon and leverage those relationships that were already there and, and pretty good working relationships, I might add, I think all of that really helped us to swim upstream and make sure that we had prevention going on because we knew that as a community, we're all in it together. I mean, it sounds very cliche, but it was very true where if you have outbreaks happening in the nursing homes, that was only a matter of time until those landed within our system as patients. And so whatever we can do to help prevent and move things further upstream, that was a lot of the effort. I think the last point I would make around COVID is philosophically, I think it, it really highlighted how we're probably a little different than at least some of our peers, if not most of our peers, which is because we've always been about prevention and going upstream. And I think that goes hand in hand and is part and parcel of us having had this value-based orientation. Partly that also helped us because I think we sort of carry more of a public health orientation. And so whether it was you know, very aggressive and early actions on the vaccine, whether it was getting out there and doing a lot of education with our local community partners, literally going and helping to be the rapid response team for nursing homes and others. I think all of that became possible because we viewed that as our role. And I don't think every hospital across the country necessarily views that as their role because some might view their role more when the patient enters the door. I think our role, we view it more through this community lens, through this broader prevention and public health lens. And I think that's driven because of those roots in that value-based orientation. So those are some of the insights. And, and of course, COVID, the journey continues, unfortunately, but I think those have served us well. Dr. Rue, I'd like to further explore how Geisinger has been able to optimize care delivery and, and leverage your keen interest on prevention and being upstream to help manage patient populations. And, and Geisinger created the Still Institute for Health Innovation to better serve their communities through human-centered design and care delivery with a focus on affordability and helping those most in need. So in thinking about affordability, Geisinger, with the innovative solutioning support of the Still Institute, is committed to lowering total cost of care through using human-centered design and innovation by accessing new capabilities in AI, machine learning, data analytics, and care models. And we're going to get into some of the specifics of your other programs for health innovation later in the interview. But before we do that, can you speak to the culture of innovation at Geisinger and how that can be leveraged to catalyze the organization toward value-based care adoption? And how does Geisinger engineer human-centered design into the innovation process to ensure it incorporates consumer and community feedback, both for care delivery and for population health efforts? Yeah, and, and I think this is a combination of things. One, we were very lucky because historically, as you mentioned, we, we have been an organization that's never been afraid of innovation. And in fact, we've embraced it. And I think partly it's embedded into our DNA because of 
some of the things I talked about earlier, the fact that we carry risk on a good chunk of our population allows us to really innovate and think differently about care. So a lot of these programs, we were then able to, a uh, few years ago, we were able to coalesce them and bring all of these programs together under the Steel Institute. And there's sort of uh, some pre-existing programs, whether it was our work in fresh food pharmacy or opiate dependence in the community, our data and analytics around artificial intelligence, machine learning. We had some of these capabilities happening before and we moved them together under one place, the Steel Institute, so that there, there can be a central kind of repository of knowledge that could be shared across the different areas of the organization. And at the same time that we wanted that team to go off and build new capabilities. And we've seen that happen and just even the use of automation to enhance some of our day-to-day -day processes. So it's just been a remarkable sort of thinking and learning lab, if you will. And um, I think the human-centered design aspect has really been focused around orienting and, and rooting itself around real problems. And the joke I always use is, you know, sometimes you can innovate for innovation's sake, and, and that will oftentimes lead you down paths where you're studying and learning about things that ultimately don't really impact the patient or impact the community. You know, it's great to study the soil content on Mars and innovate around that. But, you know, at the end of the day, we want to invent things and we want to rethink things that are happening here on Earth. And so I think that's a big part of the philosophy that we've taken with the Steel Institute. And I think that's been part of that notion of how we design it. We want the folks that are experiencing the problems or the challenges or the hiccups whether it's our patients, our members, or even our staff to identify the problems and then the team to help them solve those problems and identify potential solutions around those problems through a systems orientation. And, and that's been a big part of how we've gone about thinking about the Steel Institute. So it's been a tremendous asset for us in terms of continuing the journey of you know, things that were in place long before I ever got here or, you know, any of us ever got here, because it really has been a part of Geisinger's core kind of mission and orientation for a number of decades. Well, Dr. Rue, as I think about the culture of innovation at Geisinger and all the, the, the different projects and development efforts that are underway, I can think of no better example of innovation than what your system has done around primary care redesign. And we talked about primary care earlier, but, you know, by its nature, primary care, you know, has to be holistic and it's concerned with all the health circumstances and needs of a patient, but it's really difficult in a value-based world when you look at the high-risk patient segments that really need that intensity of care. And in a normal primary care setting, you're just not able to laser focus on those patients because you're caring for everyone in a population. And I know Geisinger has taken a lot of steps to really reinvent the primary care model for the future of value-based care by improving access and implementing a team-based approach to better manage that panel of high-risk patients and that reinvented primary care model you mentioned earlier, 65 forward, those are the primary care clinics that are specifically tailored in your system to meet the needs of those that are age 65 and over, provides VIP level personalized care, same day appointments, longer visits, 
one-stop shopping, social and educational activities, and, and personalized wellness planning. Dr. Rue, I'd love to hear you describe the vision for Geisinger's redesign of primary care through the creation of Geisinger 65 Forward. And how does Geisinger's primary care model utilize team-based care and risk stratification with that associated analytical support and electronic medical record solutions to really create the impacts in your patient population? And what have the outcomes been so far with 65 Forward and better managing chronic disease within your senior population? Yeah, Eric, you you hit on a lot of really good points. I think if I sum this whole area of work up, I would say one size does not fit all. I think that's really the punchline here. And it's all about segmenting the population. Now, you don't want to go crazy with it, but there are some natural areas to segment the population because it turns out folks who are 65 and older, if you try to fit them into a traditional primary care framework, you know, some of them do great. And we don't, we don't mess with that. If, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If they're happy with their primary care doc, we think great because we do run a great primary care operation. We call that our community medicine department and they do a phenomenal job. But for some folks who feel like they need something a little different in the model, they're 65 and older, and maybe they have uh, multiple chronic diseases and they can't really have all of their needs uh, addressed in the typical 15-minute visit with a doc or 20-minute visit with a physician or an advanced practitioner, that's where we introduce the 65-forward 60, concept. It's a senior-focused primary care. We limit the panel size to 450, which is about a fifth, if not a sixth, of what your typical primary care panels are across the country. And so what that means is you get an awful lot more time with your physician and the care team. Um, it's not atypical, in fact, pretty customary to have an hour for each visit going on in these centers. And then as you referenced, on the front end of these clinics, there's you know, non-clinical services as well, whether it's social aspects or fitness classes or, or Zumba class or a pottery class, book club, uh, sort of a coffee shop feel, all of those things. And the idea is to really encourage seniors to come into the center, even if they don't need a clinical visit, just to come in, almost view it like a community center where they can come in. There's a, a little bit of a social club and a community feel that we're trying to create. I think it gives and keeps seniors more active, which we know is always going to lead to better health outcomes. And so that's kind of the picture of what we've created there. You've heard and you've probably seen some other senior-focused primary care models that are out there across the industry. I think what's different about ours is that it's fully integrated and housed within a health system. And so the uh, primary care function and the specialty care function, the lab, the pharmacy, the radiology... And God forbid you still have to be admitted into the hospital or you bounce in and out of an emergency room. All of that is managed by the same team, housed on the same electronic medical record. I think that's what really differentiates us from so many of these other senior-focused primary care models that are starting to enter the scene. I think that's where we've seen tremendous results. You know, We've seen fewer people land in the ED, fewer people land in the hospital, I believe it's two and a half times less likely to land in the emergency room, one and a half times less likely to be admitted to the hospital. 
and things like colon cancer screening, breast cancer screening, diabetic retinopathy screening, all of these preventive services, all of those quality measures are in fact even higher in this model as well. And so tremendously excited. We are, I believe, have launched five or six at this point with another four or five to come in the next year. And so this is selling like hotcakes is what I would say. And the reason why is I think there's an, uh, a gap to fill in terms of what's available in terms of primary care offerings that are out there. And, and this is one of those areas where we see an opportunity. The other though, is it's worth mentioning that even our broader primary care offering, we did a lot of redesign work on that starting about four years ago. And we moved to a panel-based approach, a team-based approach. And so it pairs the physician or advanced practitioner together with the clinical pharmacist, the social worker, the nurse navigator, kind of has all these wraparound services so that whatever the patient's needs might be, there's a good menu of options of programs that we can get them plugged into and services that we can provide, uh, trying to make those things easier. Again, the whole idea being, we wanna make the path of least resistance be out closer into the communities, be closer to where patients live so that that care does not land in the ER or doesn't land in the hospital unless it really needs to. Dr. Rue, I'm just really impressed by the work that Geisinger's doing and being thoughtful, redesigning, innovative. I heard you make a comment recently that we need to move care away from field of dreams type of facilities, the if you build it, they will come model towards a more asset light model of care delivery. As care becomes more virtualized and procedures shift more and more into the ambulatory setting, it definitely seems that the hospital of the future will be asset light. And in this model, the focus would be on providing higher levels of emergency medical and surgical care with capacity weighted toward more intensive patient management. The acute care facility would be supported by a network of connected and expanded ambulatory resources that are enabled by remote patient monitoring and other technologies. The hospital at home model where patients receive acute level care in their homes rather than in a hospital would be a big part of this future as well. And Geisinger has become a national example for home-based care delivery with the creation of its Geisinger at home model that you've referenced. And it's an at-home care program that delivers care where Geisinger Gold members get home-based care for complex, difficult to manage health conditions. So in the advent of clinical integration with more of an emphasis on ambulatory care and consumerism, how do you see the role of the hospital change where it's no longer at the pinnacle of care, but instead it's a provider on a continuum? And how does the hospital at home movement fit into the equation for the future of hospitals? What outcomes has Geisinger realized with its hospital at home model that provides longitudinal comprehensive in-home assessment and care planning with coordinated primary care to help those patients most in need? Yeah, so I'll go back to the field of dreams analogy. And I think uh, we've used that quite a bit. We've said really for the better part of the first century of our existence, we're a 106-year-old organization. I think we were, like many other health systems, you know, building great facilities, building great clinical programs, and people had to come to these campuses and get their care. And it was classic, you know, you build it and people came and 
people came and they came in droves and we were incredibly blessed to be able to serve our communities in that way. And we know that that's gonna to continue to be a key piece of the care delivery continuum. There's always going to be very sick people that need to be in hospitals, need to be managed in a very intense setting, may need to get very complicated, complex procedures done uh, by the specialists and so forth. And we're extremely proud of our ability to build a lot of those great programs, truly world-class programs. But we also know that a lot of our next chapter of Geisinger is all about building a lot of clinical programs and meeting people in communities closer to where they are. So taking it further out from these campuses and instead moving things into clinics, moving things into whether it's primary care or even in the specialty clinics, moving things into the home. And we know that a lot of the care that currently takes place in the hospital setting, we can move into the home. Now, it just requires a lot of building out of those capabilities to be able to deploy them into the home. But we started doing this with a program called Geisinger at Home about three years ago, where we took and identified the sickest 3% of our patient population. And we saw when we did that, you know, 35% reduction in hospital admission rates, 25% reduction in ER visit rates, and it made it a lot easier for these patients and for their families. I think that showed us that it can be done, and the more we're able to bolster what kinds of services we can bring into the home, you know, we started with just simple IVs or nebulized therapies, things like that, and, and the care coordination itself and the physician visit itself, but we know that uh, there's an opportunity to do even more, and so that's what we're continuing to build to, and evolve towards. And I think, as I mentioned, it, it doesn't mean hospitals are going away. In fact, I think we're going to need to continue to build capacity there because as our patient population ages, we know that there's going to be greater need. But we also think there's an opportunity to decant a lot of the less severe and less complicated things into that home environment and do it as effectively and within the comfort of someone's own home, which makes it a lot easier for patients and their families. And so that's the model and that's the concept. And we're very excited by some of the initial findings and the progress that we've been able to make. I couldn't agree more, Dr. Rue, and it certainly seems that we're going to continue to need hospitals, of course, but we're going to have to rethink how we deliver care and really span the the brick and mortar of the traditional hospital setting and look into more, you know, care at home and other models that meet patients where they are in the community. And as we look to improve health outcomes in our country, I mean, it's become quite clear that healthcare is only one factor to consider. And, you know, as we think more about population health, we have to think about social determinants of health. And I know the U.S. has devoted vast resources to medical care to improve the nation's health, but it seems that medical care, you know, often, you know, overemphasizes disease treatment rather than prevention and rarely addresses a lot of those socioeconomic factors and physical environments and other things that are strong predictors of health outcomes. And that premise that 80 to 90% of a person's health and well-being is ultimately determined by social factors and environment is really a profound thing to think about in the context of value-based care. I mean, truly the zip code you live in has more impact on your health 
than having access to healthcare services. And the implications of social determinants of health on health equity is especially huge since African-American, Hispanic, and Native American communities have long experienced wide gaps in household income and household wealth. And there's so much to address in the SDOH space from access to quality education, employment, housing, transportation, nutritious foods. All of these things can influence the well-being of a community more than the delivery of healthcare itself. So, you know, Dr. Rue, I wanted to ask you if you could describe what Geisinger is doing to, to really go upstream and take actions to address those social determinants of health like access to transportation, healthy food, and improved living environments. We'd love to hear your vision for that and what role the health system has to play in that. This has been an area that's been near and dear to our hearts for quite some time. I think the trick with this is how do you turn it from something that's sort of philanthropy or grant supported into something that really carries with it its own business model? I think, and that's not true here at Geisinger alone. It's just sort of across the country, across the industry, I think as we see more efforts to make that pivot, I think we're going to see this whole area and the work around social determinants really accelerate and snowball. And I hope to see that, and I believe we will see that, and I think we're starting to see that already. So all of that is very, very encouraging. I think for us, we've had probably the greatest experience at depth with food. And we launched, and I, I think I mentioned it earlier, a program called the Fresh Food Pharmacy basically takes diabetics who are poorly controlled, their sugars are poorly controlled, I should say, and these are folks who identify as being, quote unquote, food insecure, it enrolls them in a program that provides essentially a food kitchen, so access to lean meats, fresh produce, they come in and pick up groceries, essentially, a couple times a week, but also as a part of that, they're also getting food coaching, whether it's dietitian support, cooking lessons even in some cases, just really learning more about food and the importance of food on their disease, but also on their lifestyles overall. When we pair those two aspects, the food program and the coaching program, we've seen tremendous results. On average, we see 40% or so reduction in their hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of how much sugar has been in their bodies. That equates to something on the order of two to three points of a reduction on the hemoglobin A1C. And that's tremendous. I mean, if, if you optimize somebody on their medications, a diabetic patient on their medications, you optimize them, you might expect to see a reduction of one point, And we're seeing at least double that through this program. So food truly has proven to be uh, more effective than medicine. At the same time, though, what's interesting is the quality measures of, you know, care gap closure and so forth. We've seen that go up, I believe, around the 75% range versus the 50% range for folks who may not be in that program, but similar kind of demographic and similar disease challenges. We've also seen reductions in inpatient and ED use. And what's most interesting to me is we've seen about a 20% increase in the use of primary care in that population. And I think what that really indicates is that the, this program helps people get more engaged with their health. And I think that's exactly the point. 
Now, one of the things that's still kind of going through analysis is whether there's a business model around this, because when you give people access to healthier foods, it's not like that's a billable service within the fee-for-service world. You don't, there's no CPT code for a banana, right? And so the way to make it business sustainable is to the extent these folks are in our own insurance plan, and you heard me talk about, you know, they're healthier, then clearly there's a business model around that. We don't limit it to our own insurance. We, we have it available for all patients who meet that criteria. And we've been very lucky to partner with local food banks and have some grant support and philanthropic support that keeps this program going and has allowed it to triple in size just in the last 18 months. And so a lot of great promise. Now what we're also starting to do is expand it beyond diabetes and also into other disease states that are very sensitive to diet. Um, a big one is chronic kidney disease. So it gives you a sense of what we're doing. That's just the food program. We're also looking at enhancing and bolstering our social programs around access to other social services. Our team put together a neat repository of resources called Neighborly that allows the care teams to more quickly refer patients into the applicable programs that might be available to them, and also programs around opiate dependence, a little bit of very early involvement in housing. It gives you a sense of the kinds of things we think are impactful to the communities that we serve and, and making sure that we have that menu of options so that we're tackling whole health as opposed to just you know, whatever disease they may be interacting with, with the care delivery system on. Dr. Rue, you've done so much to solve for social determinants, and it's truly remarkable. And, and I know another area where Geisinger is taking a prominent lead role is in precision health and genomics. When social and behavioral determinants of health and patient preferences are combined with genomic information, I think there's an amazing opportunity to improve value-based care outcomes. And the concept of precision health is so much broader than genomics-driven care. It reflects our need to tailor today's healthcare system to the specific requirements of individuals at a time and place of their choosing. It's really about helping each individual thrive based on factors specific to them and requires more contextual knowledge about a person's behaviors, environments, genomics, and more. I'm really interested in the concept of precision health, which focuses on preventing disease before it starts and uses the latest technological advances to develop the tools to do so. Can you please describe Geisinger's MyCode Community Health Initiative, a precision medicine project that analyzes the DNA of patient participants that sign up for it? And how's the project helping providers find ways to diagnose medical conditions earlier, even before symptoms appear, and also to help them find new treatments or medications to manage their diseases? Yeah, so this has been a program that I would almost call this mind-blowing, just what we're able to do. And it's been fantastic to be able to bring these to these communities. It's, it goes with what I said earlier, truly a world-class program that we're able to bring to these communities. And we're so incredibly lucky and proud of the progress that we made. At this point, we have over 200,000 DNA samples, and I, I believe almost 300,000 consented. So there's another 100,000 coming soon. But uh, what it really does is it identifies and looks for uh, people who may have an abnormality, a genetic abnormality in one of, you know, 100 or so, I believe it's 80, 90, or 100, thereabouts, clinical mutations or genetic mutations that are actionable, 
And, and it would mean that something has to change with your care plan as a result of knowing that you have one of these genetic mutations. And so on average, we see about 3% of the population has, in fact, one of these genetic mutations. And a good example is Lynch syndrome, which, you know, many physicians, I, I certainly didn't remember, you know, coming out of medical school, what exactly Lynch syndrome was. I remember learning about it at one point, but these aren't commonly found things. But if you take a typical patient and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force says that every 10 years, you need a colonoscopy if you're above the age of 50. Unless you're in a higher risk category, let's say someone in your family died of colon cancer fairly early on, that preventive guideline may change for those folks. Well, imagine if you're somebody who has a genetic mutation, i.e. the Lynch syndrome, that subjects you to sub substantially higher risk of a variety of cancers, one of which might be colon cancer. At that point, your care plan changes because a colonoscopy once every 10 years that ain't cutting it. That's not enough given your level of risk. And so if we know that, we're able to then return the result to the care team and to the primary care physician in particular and make sure that that person not only has genetic counseling so that they have other folks in their family also get tested, but also to make sure that there's a flag in our system that it's not just a reminder to get their colonoscopy once every 10 years for this person, you may need to get it once a year or whatever. And so that's a great example of what precision health means. It means you're segmenting the population and identifying those that are truly at a substantially higher risk because of some genetic pattern and making sure that those folks get a care plan that's specifically appropriate for them and their genetic pattern. So that is what's so tremendous. We've had several thousand already that have been identified, and it's not just Lynch syndrome, it's a whole host of things that alter the care plan. And for every one person that we find, there are seven others, there's a cascade of seven others in the family who also need to be tested and potentially their care plan also needs to change. And so the ripple effect from this is, you know, we may run this program and identify somebody here in the local community. They say, my goodness, I have a brother in Vegas. I got a sister in Toronto. And, and our genetic counselors reach out and let them know that they need to be tested for the specific genetic sequence. And we're able to make sure their care plan, the people are educated to bring that back to whoever they're seeing in those other markets and cities. And so the, the reach of this is just astounding, which is why I always say this, this really is mind-boggling kind of work. And it's been unbelievable what we're able to do and some of these life-altering stories. You'd be just shocked at what the future holds on this. I think we're still in the early innings on this. And you know it's going to be an area that continues to evolve and, and get more and more prominent in terms of the care of the future couldn't agree more and the promise for what the future will hold with utilizing genomics and integrating that into a precision health model to bolster what's going on in the medical community is outstanding. And I wanted to maybe dive more into the future of value-based care in general. What really stands out to me as I look at your leadership in value-based care is that you're, you're someone that's not just consumed in caring for the community that, that you serve locally within your health system. You're also 
also outwardly focused on improving healthcare in our entire country. And I really commend you for that level of volunteerism and leadership at a national level, which includes your influence of health policy through your appointment on the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. And I know you can't speak to the specifics of the work that MedPAC is doing. However, I, I thought a great place to kind of land the plane here today in our conversation is really discussing some of your general views on health policy as it relates to value-based care. You know, as we think about all the chaos in the world around us and the, the moral and economic imperatives we have to deliver value in our healthcare system, you know, how should policymakers be thinking about value-based care in 2021 and beyond? And do you think health policy is going to move us fast enough in this race to value to meet the aggressive goal of 100% of Medicare and Medicare Advantage payments moving to downside risk models by 2025? This is one of those areas where it feels like uh, necessity is the mother of all innovation, right? I think that's how the saying goes. And I think this is True, sometimes when you have necessity and urgency, it helps to create the right environment to, to really adapt and, and put in place the right kind of changes. And I think healthcare as an industry is one that, you know, there's so much great work going on, but at the same time, obviously we have some things looming on the horizon around affordability and how do we create greater value within healthcare because I think the trajectory that the American healthcare system is on is probably not sustainable into the long term. And so as a result of that, I do believe that the policy world will continue to move quickly towards greater value-based models, so to speak, whether it's in you know, some of the payment models to enhance value or in terms of encouraging care delivery innovations. I think that is something that I think will only accelerate, mainly because it needs to, but also because it's the right thing. And it's the right thing because a lot of these models, alternative payment models, and, and definitely some of these care innovations, I mean, we talked about a lot of them today. There are data points that suggest that people's care fundamentally improves. And I think some of this is intuitive. When you focus on prevention and wellness, then you get what you design, right? And I think that comports better with people and their health and staying on the right side of the prevention curve, if you will. So I think for those reasons, I, I feel like the policy world, there's a lot of movement and momentum, and I think that'll only continue and it'll bode good things for, for the population as a whole in terms of just fostering greater health outcomes and so forth. I think as long as we keep our eyes on the prize of value and through the lens of patience and what does yield better outcomes, I think those are the right focus areas. And, and we're very lucky that oftentimes when you focus on those things, the value aspect actually naturally follows because when people are healthy, the cost to care for them is less. It tends to be less. I think those are the, all things that we have going for us as tailwinds, but I know it's an area that, you know, as you mentioned, I love kind of thinking about the bigger picture, so to speak. And I think many folks do. And those of us that are involved on the day-to-day -day operations of various parts of the industry, I think we, we owe that to try to make the system you know, the macro system, a better working system for everybody. And so I think that's one of the exciting things about healthcare as an industry. It's a lot of opportunity, a lot of movement, and 
you know, as a result, a lot of activity and, and exciting things for us all to be working on. You know, Dr. Rue, one thing that I know is differentiated with Geisinger Health and I think is something our listeners would be interested in is your direct-to-employer contracting. Uh, right now, employers, I think, are in the driver's seat for, for the transformation that's underway for the future of value-based care. I mean, the employer market covers 157 million Americans, and there's a realization now that it's dysfunctional and it's ineffective and producing value in health. Employers are paying $880 billion in medical costs to cover their employees. And on top of that, they have poor health outcomes that are costing them, you know, what's projected to be about $530 billion and just lost productivity and poor health outcomes. And, you know, self-insured employers in particular are really looking at opportunities to partner with integrated systems like yours to, to manage that total cost of care. I just want, I wanted to see if you could share maybe some insights and the current progress that Geisinger is making in, in this regard and partnering with employer organizations. We've been one of the handful of organizations that have been from the beginning with the Walmart, Lowe's, McKesson, I believe there are a handful of others, large employers that do a destination center of excellence program. And it started with just a handful of procedures, but now it continues to expand. And it's procedures like uh, bariatric surgery, back surgery, cardiac surgery, some of these elective procedures that you can plan for, they identify a whole host of criteria and protocols and quality outcomes and so forth and select what amounts to be a narrow network for their employees to get those services. And we've been participating from the beginning and continue to expand that program with them. And it's been a great way to focus on value, you know, kind of goes to what, what we've been talking about throughout the discussion. For example, with our spine program, 54% of the time when someone has been told in their home markets that they need a spine surgery, they come to us and they realize, well, no, you don't actually need a procedure. You don't need the surgery. You actually need X, Y, and Z instead. And so there's tremendous value that we're able to bring, not just to the employer, but more importantly to the patient, because of course, operating on your spine is not something you'd want to do lightly. And I think it's another great illustration of the kinds of things that we're trying to put in place and the kinds of programs that really partner well with how we thought about care and how we thought about creating consistency, less variation, and also value. Well, indeed, there's so much opportunity. And, you know, I, I have enjoyed our conversation today and hearing about all the great value-based payment innovation and what's going on with Geisinger. But I, th I think most importantly, just your optimism for the future. You know, I, I think that's just a, a breath of fresh air for, for us, I know, and our listeners as well. Dr. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Thank you both.